Welcome to Corpus Conversations, a podcast series hosted by Jonas Goals. Throughout this series, we'll be chatting with senior industry leaders about current business challenges, market trends, and hopefully offering some useful insights while sharing a few laughs along the way. We hope these conversations will give you a light bulb moment, a new strategy or idea, or just a different perspective that helps you lead your business forward in 2021 and beyond. Welcome to Corpus Conversations. My name is Jonas Golds. I'm your host. Today, I'm talking to Dan Volte, former CEO of Woodside, Seven Group, and Seven West Media. Don had a phenomenal career spanning 40 years mainly in oil and gas. His leadership style was demanding, competitive, but also deeply caring for his teams. I learned a lot about how to approach transformations align your teams, and work closely with boards on difficult decisions. Don, I always start my conversations by asking where you grew up and how you experienced your childhood. I would love to hear a little bit about your background. So, Jonas, I grew up in a, uh, in a farming community in the middle of the United States in Nebraska and was raised in Omaha, which is the largest city in, in Nebraska. Very conservative part of the country, very agriculture related with railroads and insurance is kind of the industry. Known for Midwest work ethic, hard workers. We all had chores to do when you're working on the farm, which I did during the summers. You get up around 4, 35 o'clock and start taking care of the animals and go from there. Everybody had jobs. All of us had things like paper routes and things like that when we were kids. So everybody had chores to do and I think we learned the value of work and work ethic. Did your, your family have a farm too, or were they in the city? Yeah, my mother's side were the farmers, and they came across in covered wagons from New Jersey first, and then they stopped in Ohio for a few years, and then they uh, homesteaded in Nebraska back in 1840s, and we still own that farm. My sisters and I own it. So that's the farming side of the family. My father was from the city of Omaha. And he tried a little bit of farming. It wasn't for him. So we quickly ended up back in Omaha, but it's still my mother's farm and wasn't that far from Omaha. And we, you know, I really enjoyed staying at the farm when I was a kid. In our preparation, Don, we, we talked a little bit about it. And I'm, I'm sure this is going to be all through our podcast, the theme. But in child psychology, there's this framework that I really like that speaks to how we develop motivations in life. And the underlying premise is that between the age of seven and 12, we really develop motivations and what drives us and a lot of how we think about ourselves. And it's shaped by friendships, mainly by friendships. So I was wondering, are there any friendships when you grew up in Omaha that meant a lot to you or relationships that you had that really shaped you? I think that's right. I think my answer is probably twofold. I did have a group of friends growing up. We uh, played all types of sports out in the street and down by the railroad tracks. And they were all pretty steady friends, I guess you'd say, all the way up through secondary school. I think more shaping of my motivation from age 7 to 12 was probably my main influence, my mother. My mother and father did not attend university. Their great dream in life was to have all four of their, their kids their children be able to attend university. And they worked, my mother worked two jobs to have that happen. My father 
worked a lot of hours overtime to make sure they had money for the kids to go. Uh, all four of the kids did go to college. We're all got degrees. My two oldest sisters have a, a lot of degrees <laughs> and a lot smarter than me. My mother is very competitive. She taught us a lot of board games. We played pinochle, canasta, a lot of card games, things like that. But she taught us, I'm not sure she knew how competitive she was, but grades were a big thing. You better bring home good grades because the world wasn't fair and you had to make every opportunity work for yourself. Uh, nobody's going to give you a free lunch out there. And if I heard that phrase once, I heard it a thousand times. But mother and my father, mother more than my father, I should say, was very insistent in making sure that, quote, we were prepared for life. And you didn't have to win all the time. But if you didn't win, you had to try harder next time. And reflecting, Don, from today, do you think she was right? It's a great debate within our family. Mom passed on a few years ago. And we talked about it for quite a while. Was it a positive or a negative? I, my siblings probably don't agree with me. I think it's great. I'm a very competitive person. In fact, I've been described by some as being overly competitive. I guess that's okay. I do see the negatives with competition, but I see a lot of positives, and I had to weigh it up. And I, if I had to wear that banner for the rest of my life, I'm fine with that. Very competitive. I love to win. I think when I was working at Woodside and Seven Group, that desire to win was a attribute that the board of directors appreciated because it was an always an internal drive. The chairman's first one at Woodside, who I have deep admiration for, he told people, newspaper articles and stuff, that he liked the energy that went with my competitiveness. So I think he understood me very well. And the energy was, was probably something that I tried to shed to my managers and to the employees. It's very interesting, right? And I, if I reflect on competitiveness, I certainly have a very competitive side too. I think what I always come back to on competition is how competitive am I with myself versus with others? And I think there's a healthy element if it's with yourself and you learn to use it as a drive, as you mentioned, as an energy in life. And then you need to know when to let go and when to call it a day as well. But but that that's an energy that is there. And it's so interesting to learn that that's something that your mom really, yeah. really taught you. And it seems like that she had that as something that really mattered to her personally as well. Yeah, I think I think that that's right. You talked a little bit about knowing when to turn it off. That's probably something that I could be criticized as one of my faults was sometimes I probably went too far. And I recognize that. I think for a company like Woodside, when we were competing against the Exxon, Chevrons, BPs, and Shells of the world, especially Shell, I loved that underdog role. And, you know, it was really fun, you know, being David versus Goliath. And frankly, we had like five Goliaths out there that we were trying to, not physically, but slay, right? And I really enjoyed the heck out of that. I mean, Woodside was a perfect fit for my competitiveness and my energy level. These companies were not run by a bunch of slackies. Let me tell you, these guys, I worked for mobile for 22 years and I know what it took to, to get to their management. So when you were competing against Chevron or you were competing against BP or Shell, it was phenomenal competition. And these guys were good. These people were good. But I really enjoyed that role. But it worked personally for me. I hope it worked for the company. I know it worked for the shareholders for both of the companies that I ran in Australia. So 
I think it was my mother, my friends, maybe some. I also competition with my sisters. I had three sisters, no brothers. And I'll just say the competition, always hearing from teachers that had taught my sisters. And, you know, my sisters were really smart. And I wasn't, I don't think, quite as smart. And I had to, one thing I had to do, I always had to work for my grades. It didn't come easy for me. I know guys that went to university that just went and took their test and everything was fine. I, I had to study a lot. And I would just say that I think that was also, I, I think the other thing that shaped me finally, just to an, answer your next question you didn't ask, but somewhere along this, this conversation, I was greatly helped and influenced by several people that I do not know why they picked me or helped me, but I got phenomenal help from a few people at very key points along my career. First off, during school at the university and then on. And I will remain forever grateful to those folks. They know who they are. They're, they're mostly passed on now. But that mentoring and that shepherding of people, I know how important it is. And that's one of the things in my older part of my career, my, my later stages of the career, and now that I'm semi-retired, mentoring is really a big deal. I'm really inspired, Don, by you saying that because, you know, for me as well, I can see it in many organizations. There's such a difference between having the right support and sponsorship and not having that. But also, you know, it seems to me listening to you, that combination of real competitiveness and energy, but at the same time, real awareness that you got to where you got to through people that helped you. And you valuing that, that is a very unique and very special combination to yeah. look at both sides, right? To give it your best yeah. shot and work really hard, but at the same time, to be really grateful for all the help you get. Yeah. Well, this kid from literally the wrong side of the tracks, from a, you know, a very small populated state like Nebraska with no cosmopolitan New York or Los Angeles, the expectation for me was was probably not great. Parents hadn't been to school or university. I'm just saying is is that it was always the underdog type thing. And, and I'll just say that along the way, there were just a couple mentions uh, through university. I had this one professor. He actually pulled me aside and said, Don, I know your background. I know how hard you work. I know how grades are important to you. And But I know that your career is going to be important to you. But he said, I think you're undershooting your capabilities as you're really good with people. You're very, very good at common sense. And he said, you can evaluate situations. His name was Professor Swihart. He really pushed me hard and he always told me, and I kept in touch with him for many, many years after I graduated, but he always felt like he was worried I was gonna cut myself short and I'll never forget him. He was my structural steel. I'm a civil engineer, but by training. Uh, but he's my structural professor and very key, obviously, in civil engineering for a person that was started out building platforms out in the Gulf of Mexico in my first job. So along the way, there was plenty of other mentors, but they were all kind of, seemed like every five years I got a boost from somebody and it happened over in Australia too. My first chairman who brought me to Australia, Charles Good, he was one of those people, he knew exactly how to handle me. He knew to give me a wide berth but keep a pretty tight leash on me. And I remember him 
always kind of wondering what was going to be in the newspapers because he was in Melbourne. I was out in Perth and I was always, Shell at that time owned quite a bit of Woodside. It was a interesting relationship with your biggest shareholder and we had to protect ourselves, but also realize they were a biggest shareholder. So Charles Good was phenomenal at, at managing me, but allowing me creative space and all that. Carrie Stokes and Ryan Stokes, another two folks that, you know, we didn't have any relationship at all, but through Perth and just through bouncing around, I got had the opportunity to jump on Carrie's uh, Seven West board and developed a relationship. I had gone back to the U.S. and retired after Woodside. And he uh, enticed me to come back over and try to improve some of his companies in Seven Group. And I really enjoyed that. I had a relationship with Carrie and Ryan that was uh, phenomenal. And I think they understood me too. And, and Carrie knew when to pull back the reins, but he also knew when to, to kind of let you loose. And what I'm just saying is, is that there's certain people about every five years that when I look back at it, they were very influential. And if those people didn't exist, I certainly wouldn't have had the fulfilling career that I had. And I wouldn't have been able to meet all these wonderful people that are now running companies like Kevin Gallagher and others. I think from my managers, we spawned, I counted them up one time, 17 people that worked for me are have been or are currently CEOs of other public companies. So that's that's been a fun legacy to have, to see at the end of your career, it's not about you anymore. It's about your people. And the people that have helped you succeed, you want to make sure they succeed. And all the way down through the organization, I still have a lot of contact with gas plant operators up at Northwest Shelf and over at Pluto and things. They keep in touch with me through email or LinkedIn or this, that, or the other thing. So it, it's all about them at this point in life. I just really get excited when I see somebody that worked their tail off for me and my management team and for our vision of what we wanted our company to be for them now in their role, getting to achieve their career aspirations. That's that really gives me great pleasure, phenomenal pleasure. Don, you mentioned earlier that you had people that believed in you and that saw in you more than you probably saw yourself. In the people that you gathered around you, your teams, was that a similar dynamic? Did you yeah. choose sometimes people that had also a very strong self-conscience? How was that dynamic with you and your team? Yeah, my, my management teams, I learned pretty early on. One of my bosses in life was a guy named Lucho Noto. He was the CEO and chairman of Mobile Oil. Lucho was a very interesting man. He was a man a generation before his time. He was the one that really, quote, introduced all of us to diversity and how diversity was really important to your company and how it was really important to give everybody great opportunities early on in their career so they could compete for jobs, you know, like gender diversity, were you giving the women in your companies at the engineering rank entry level, were you giving them the same opportunities as, quote, the white guys? And uh, I would just say that it was very interesting what I learned from him back in the 1990s. I am absolutely a believer that the more that your workforce either looks like your client base or your community that you work in, one of my most proud moments of what my management team did in building the Aboriginal opportunity set 
up in the gas plants up in Northwest Australia. We had over 200 Aboriginals working for us when I left. And I know the first day that I walked into Woodside, there was one. And he was sitting behind a desk with what I could tell was nothing to do. And that wasn't me. That was the management team and the board of directors all believing in that vision and aligning our goals and our company to achieve that. That's just one area. Uh, to go back to your question, though, I was pretty brutal in, in making sure that I had the right management team around me. And then I wanted really smart people surrounding me, but I, but I needed more than that. I needed people that challenged me. And I would get opinions very early on, and I was impulsive. And I needed people to say, Don, you're wrong. You need to rethink that. That's not going to make us achieve what we need to achieve. So I wanted people that were strong enough, confident enough, smart enough to work in a group and in a team to you know, let the vision set the mission. The mission sets the objectives of the company. And then the objectives build your strategies off of that. And then you build your tactical plan. You execute. And then you measure. And then you do that all over again. And it was really important to have the right people. I especially needed a strong CFO. I was really good on, on the big picture stuff. I knew we had a lot of gas offshore Australia, and, and I knew we had a lot of LNG capability. I needed people to do the nuts and bolts of that. And uh, one of my managers, she's pretty well known in Australia, so I won't name her name, but she says, Don, you're like a big elephant in a parade. You know, the rest of us are back there shoveling behind you, you know. I sat and said, what do you mean? She says, well, we just take care of all the details, but you need to keep charging out there. And I it wasn't a very flattering picture, but I think I understood what she was meaning. I'll just say that I like that honesty, and I like my managers to be able to tell me that. And sometimes I race too far ahead, and, you know, you have to let the organization catch up. But I think it was really important. One of the other really important things of leadership it's different if you're running a 4,000-person organization or like what I do now, I chair a couple of philanthropy foundations and also engineering advisory councils for the university and things like that. And it's different when you're working in that type of a peer group versus you know running an organization. But I think it's really important to set that vision and set the goal and make sure that we call it alignment in the organization that every job, every person that's employed, they're employed for a reason. And it's because their job's important. And I, it was always important to me that everybody needed to know why their job contributed to the team and contributed to us achieving our goals. And a lot of people call that alignment, but everybody had to have the same alignment to the same goal in the organization. And that was one of the key metrics that we had in our company. But diversity of opinion, there's no bad ideas. We loved open forums at our executive meetings our management meetings. And also after we had a good management team installed, I'd like to walk out of those meetings and just let the management team do the business of the company. And it was great learning for them. So that's kind of it in a nutshell in, in a lot of respects, but nurturing a great management team and watching them flourish. And, and I measured myself with every year with how much each of the managers grew. I remember when Kevin Gallagher seems to be a person almost everybody in Australia knows. He runs Santos now. He was a drilling engineer for Mobile Oil in the North Sea. 16 years before I joined Woodside, I knew Kevin Gallagher up in the North Sea drilling for Mobile Oil. And uh, I was running Europe for a while. And all I'll say is, is that I saw Kevin from the time he basically graduated from a university in Scotland all the way up. And I used to 
watched that growth in his career. And I thought, when is he going to top out? And it's pretty clear to me he's continuing to grow and he, he hasn't topped out yet. And I can say that for probably 10, 12, 15 other people that worked with. But I got mad at myself if I didn't see enough growth in my management team from year to year. And sometimes you have to give people opportunities and switch jobs around to where it broadened their capabilities too. And one of my jobs, I felt, was to prepare these people for their career ultimate goal that they had set for themselves. It's great, Don. It's, it, it really shows in the way you describe it, that level of trust right, that you have to have as a team to get to the point where you're very open, where you know that your boss is for you, not against you, where you make it a very explicit goal to help them achieve their goals. And for you to measure your success and the success of your team, I find amazing. Well, it always wasn't smooth, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, kind of a torturous past sometimes. And we had failures. I, I regret some relationships that just didn't work out. But I also believe that the vast majority did. Shouldn't be like making sausage. But every once in a while, it, it gets difficult. I, we got in some very stressful situations. When we were building Pluto, Little Woodside was building 100% of that plant. And our payroll for the contractors every week was huge. And then we had the 2008 crisis hit us, the, where we had huge revolving loans from the banks, the four pillars of Australia. And we had them all set up, and we could borrow from these revolvers. And I remember very clearly that uh, we owed money to our contractors, and all of our banks told us that they hadn't gotten any money infusion from the European or their mother banks in the U.S., and they couldn't follow through in their revolvers. And my CFO just got up, jumped on a plane, went to New York and went to the secondary markets and was the first Australian company to utilize secondary markets there to, to basically for us to pay our bills. And it was interesting, but we had those type of step-up opportunities too where we had absolutely fantastic performance on an individual basis that led to the team goals. If left to me, we would have failed. But we had that capability within the team for people to step up and, and do really remarkable things. Don, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier around the alignment, right? In my work with organizations, that is part of the you know, secret source of an organization. How do you create the alignment? How do you really get to the point where everybody works towards the right outcome, but also can pivot if that outcome is changing? And it sounds straightforward to say, we're going to create alignment with the right goal, the right objectives, all the teams know what they need to do. But we both know that's very, very difficult to achieve and very often comes down to personal dynamics in the organization as well on how much alignment you can create. How did you achieve that? Because, you know, taking Woodside from, I think, 9 billion market cap to 36 within seven years is such a remarkable growth story. How did you achieve that alignment? And when did you actively shape it or change things when you realized that the alignment might not work out? I'll also say we paid a good dividend through that whole period too. So it's even better than, than that. A little bit of arrogance. Got to have that whenever you're interviewing a Yankee. 
I used to get very frustrated. We used to do employee surveys. Everybody surveys everything. And, and we had upward appraisals. We had 360s. We had all this stuff. And utilized correctly, it's really good. And I used to get very frustrated when there was always a question on there, something like, do you know how your job that you're asked to do furthers the goal of the organization? And 61% said yes, and, and like 30% said no. And I'm sitting there going, how can that be? You know, how can we still be losing 30% of our employees that aren't there? And, you know, we whittled that down, but it was never perfect. But what I realized is you had to have enough mass and momentum to where the group would go. And I think some people use surveys to, to uh, give a general health of their own satisfaction in their job and other things are going on with people's lives. And you just got to realize that. So I would just say it is really important to make sure you got the main... I used to have this phrase when I came over from the U.S. when I started at Woodside. It was an organization that needed a lot of change culturally. And I would just say that that's not said arrogantly. It's just I had been working at mobile in the LNG side of the business, and it was us versus Shell all over the world. And then a lot of new entrants started piling in, but it was very competitive. And when you looked at Woodside, it was a phenomenal small company over in Australia that had these unbelievable resources available to them. But they were doing so well with the first three trains at Northwest Shelf that life was pretty easy. We had a good cash flow, payroll was being made and everything. You know, you kind of get around and Shell would do a lot of your technical work for you. I wanted to become self-sufficient because I knew Shell wasn't always going to be there. Number two is we had these tremendous resources and, and we needed train four at Northwest Shelf. We needed train five and we needed Pluto, which we all got done, those three items. And, and I'll just say that it took a different work effort. It was uh, faster. People had to multitask. They had to work on, on two or three projects at a time versus just one big cash flow project. And so uh, it was difficult to get the organization to understand why we needed to do that because in my mind, the shareholders would demand that for the type of resources we had. Plus, it was good for the country. We ended up being a very significant player for the gross national product of Australia. And the whole relationship with the government was very important to us at Woodside. Very, very important for us at Woodside being an Australian company. So when I first started, we had really a lot of problems getting everybody to come aboard. I used to think of my days in New York, taking the subway to work, and there's this old Actually, it wasn't subway. It was a train to coming down from Connecticut. But uh, it, there, there's an old phrase in the U.S. was is that there's a bus or a train that comes along every 20 minutes, right? My problem was I had all these people on the platform, and I was trying to get them to get on the bus, trying to get them to get on the train in a new vehicle. And uh, it was difficult. We had a lot of people that were not sure they wanted to follow this new guy. In fact, there was a pool on for how long I would last. And uh, I know the person that gave me the longest time, and it, it was well under the ultimate tenure I served there, but kind of the joke in the company was, this guy's not going to make it here. You know, he doesn't understand Australian culture. And it was interesting because I got frustrated and I said something one day at, a, at an employee forum that I shouldn't have said. I said, I remember very clearly, it was down at the city convention center down in Perth. We had thousands of people there and I was getting frustrated. I said, I need your help. I need you to get off the platform and get on the train. And not enough of you are coming off that platform. So I'm going to tell you what, you know, we're going to give you a little while longer. But if you're not on the train, you're going to be under the train. And 
I realized I probably shouldn't have said that because when I was walking back up to the Woodside building, I was on one side of the street with nobody else and all the Woodside employees were on the other side of the street. <laughs> and and I, I realized I was being shunned. They had to pick up the subtle nuances of it all, but and rightfully so. I shouldn't have said it. But ultimately, some people had to come to the decision they didn't want to work for the company anymore because they didn't like the speed and the the goals that we had set for the company. But I think most everybody came along. I think there was pretty enriching jobs and careers for them if, if they would hang with it. But we weren't successful with everybody. But I think at the end, we got most everybody to, to come aboard. But it's really important to have the alignment of the organization. Everybody, I know it's an old term, but everybody rowing in the same direction. It's pretty amazing what a small group of people, I'm talking small, a woodside versus a shell or versus a BP. It's pretty amazing what a small group of people that's all located in one area, all trying to achieve the same thing. It really was a David situation versus a Goliath. And I think in most cases, we did okay. And in fact, a lot of people say we won a lot of those battles. We lost one or two, but we won most of them. You mentioned when we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, Don, that there was also that mindset at Woodside, can we actually be a larger organization? Can we take our competitors on? And it sounded like with you coming and bringing some of that vision in, that really created an excitement too, because the people that stayed really started believing in the potential of the organization. Well, I will say there is, when I got there, there was some that really knew the potential. My exploration manager, he certainly understood it well before I showed up. He knew what the potential was. We also had to kind of stay at home. We flung out too much when we weren't big enough to do that versus the resources we had. It wasn't as much fun for our guys working on things they'd worked on for 10, 15 years, but it was the right thing for the shareholders. To answer your question, I think it's right to say that folks came aboard. Let's just use an example. When I got there, there was 150 plus shell secondes that were working in our building. They were actually shell employees. And I didn't do my due diligence very well starting with the company. I didn't realize that until I got there. I said, what are these guys doing? They have all of our seismic data. They got, you know, they've got everything. Well, they really formed the technical branch. You know, everybody believed that we couldn't build an LNG plant at Woodside with Woodside employees. It took Shell to build it. It's pretty true. Uh, trains one and two and, and maybe part of three, Shell basically designed and built the thing with contractors along with a few Woodsiders sprinkled in. I remember the day that the last Shell Secondi left our company. And I think that gave all the Woodsiders great confidence. You know, we're going to build these trains and, and we're going to build these ourselves. And, you know, we're just Australians and stuff. Well, oh, you're human beings with great educations. You're smart people. And you can build these just as well as anybody else on earth can do this. And so there's a lot of that that had to come aboard. But you could see the confidence of the Woodside employees. This may be a little melodramatic. They may be laughing if they, if they listen to this. But you can see the confidence of the organization growing almost daily. You know, it got to a situation in 2010 where I literally had a lot of folks in meetings say, just stay out of the way, Voldy. We got this. We've got this. We, you know, we got you covered. Don't, don't think about the future, you know. <laughs> and it was, it was really a, an interesting change from, the, from what you might call day zero, where 
the shell guys handled all that stuff. And I could see where their confidence level was exactly what the culture had allowed it to be because we did rely on Shell to do everything for us for a long period of time. But how were we ever going to be a company uh, on our own for where there were projects like Pluto that had no Shell interest, whereas at Northwest Shell, they had the one-sixth interest. So it was important to build not only the capability, but also the, the character and the identification that when you walk down the street and you said you're a Woodside employee, you could hold your head up as high as the ExxonMobil employee that you met at the restaurant to have lunch with. It was really important for me that we gained equal status for a Woodside employee versus any other oil and gas employee in the world. What role, if we stay with Woodside for a little bit, what role did the board play for you and how important was that in that transformation that you led? Yeah, well, boards are very important the way they're set up. Companies are set up in Australia, the, the kind of the Westminster system, as I call it. The non-executive chairman role versus the managing director slash CEO. I came out of the system in the U.S. where the CEOs were almost always the chairman. And you had mainly inside boards where the majority of your board were insiders. The Australian model is a lot like the European model where in a lot of cases you just had one the CEO, managing director, everybody else was, quote, independent directors. I didn't know how I liked that at first, but I knew I liked my board members. The Woodside board, I have to believe they came after a person like me, not because they didn't have very capable people in the company and stuff. There was one person that was the interim CEO between my predecessor and me, and that person's very, very capable. He's on the board right now for Kevin Gallagher and others. So I'm just saying is there was capable people there. But I think our board was looking for something a little bit different, with a little bit different view. They wanted somebody that had worked in Qatar and worked in Indonesia and worked around the world in these big projects and knew how to handle contractors, et cetera. Again, I've already talked about the, the first chairman at Woodside when I came aboard, as I've said, a person I'll admire forever. The rest of the board members, I can tell you every one of them right now, their names and, you know, Jillian Broadbent and John and, and Eric Franschel and all these people. And they all had very specific skills and capabilities. I quite enjoyed working with the board. I'm not sure I enjoyed the, the two-day board meetings every, every three months, but uh, I wasn't used to that. Board meetings in the U.S. are like three-hour affairs. I always very much enjoyed when the last director's flew out of Perth Airport. And, you know, we always had this saying, last wheel up. So, you know, when wheels are up, we can go back to business around here and get things done. And, but I, I enjoyed, I'm not sure they enjoyed me all the time, but I would just say that they certainly gave me a lot of rope. And in some cases, enough rope that I choked myself a few times. But, you know, boards are very good if they know their role. And, Every once in a while, they might dive into the details on a certain issue. But for overall audit purposes and guidance and ensuring that we weren't building train wrecks out there, we had a very open board meeting all the way through my time at Woodside where the managers all were involved. A lot of them sat in during the whole meeting. But it was always okay with me if the board members, and they weren't going to ask me permission anyway, but them talking directly to the managers uh, when we were building Pluto, uh, Phil Meyer, the construction project manager, 
he was a constant at the board meetings. Lucho Della Martina was a constant, who was the overall Pluto coordinator, manager of the entire project. And so it was a really pretty good relationship, but they were tough. I got appraised every year. Always enjoyed that. Charles, uh, bless his heart, it was always interesting. He always had all the good things and he would spend a lot of time on all those. But then he always had one or two things which the rest of the board said, you know, you need to talk to Don about this. And, and it was so hard for him to do that. Finally, I, uh, you know, he almost had to pull out of him. Okay, Charles, what are the negatives? Come on, you can hit me with them. Well, they're really not that bad, you know. <laughs> and whatever he said, I multiplied in my head by a factor of 10 saying that this is how they really feel. So I would just say that they gave me a lot of rope leash. They didn't let me get in trouble. They were very interested in the government aspects and they, they didn't dive into the details. What they did do was they, they gave me very good advice and their advice a lot of times were like lessons in life. They gave their own personal experiences and I could always equate them to where they were trying to help me not make the same mistake or help me do the do whatever we were doing kind of in that in that role. The other thing I appreciate about them all was they were dedicated to the shareholders' interest of Woodside Petroleum. Uh, everything about Woodside was about the shareholder and our employees. And our directors really wanted to understand how we were treating our employees and how they felt about their jobs. And, and that really helped me in the long run. Don, you mentioned that you're doing quite a bit in the philanthropic space at the moment in education and beyond. I would love to finish up our podcast, just hear a little bit what you're up to right now and what some of the things are that excite you. My wife and I are both retired. My son is 40, fixing to be 41 years old. We have four grandkids. But he has his own life and their family. And so it's kind of Nancy and I. Nancy, while I was over in Woodside and stuff, she was on a lot of boards, but she early on went the philanthropic route of, of working on not-for-profit foundations and things like that. She was chair of the University of Nebraska Foundation, which is a $3 billion endowment. We raise about $250, $300 million a year and give about $250 million back to the university for them to spend on an annual basis. I'll be uh, picking up the chairmanship of that in October for a couple of years, um, working with the large donors in, in Nebraska and Nebraska alums. Nebraska is kind of an interesting university. It's a, it's a land-grant university, which doesn't mean anything to people in Australia, but it was basically created to provide a university for the people in, in the state of Nebraska and beyond. And it was originally funded by the government. Not so much anymore, obviously. But we have very, very generous donors in Nebraska, especially in Omaha. Omaha is kind of a Rich little community where everybody's affiliated with Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway in one way or another. Headquarters of Union Pacific are there. Mutual of Omaha is there and stuff. So we have some very large corporations and, and people in Nebraska are very giving people. We've built a huge medical complex there. Um, the best oncology center in, in probably a seven or eight state region. And we're probably rated one of the top 15 uh, teaching hospitals in the country. Um, we've, also, we've also built several other things, agriculture, water, science of water, probably the nation leader in that aspect. So we, we do a lot of things that are good, in my belief, for making sure that every child, every 
person in Nebraska wants an education gets one, are building tremendous number of scholarships. We don't want kids to graduate with huge student debt. So we work very hard. Everybody in Nebraska, families that have under $60,000 of annual income, gets a free education. We pay for it from the foundation of scholarships in the state. It's something we're very proud of. One day we want all Nebraska kids to have a free education at a great university, and that's what we're working forward to. So what I do in that role is I'm a volunteer, not paid. And what I do is work with the management team who are the paid employees of the foundation. There's about 300 of them. And we work with the CEO and we're the board of directors that, that basically puts a guidance around, around that group. I worked with several other philanthropic, smaller organizations. We've been lucky enough in life to give back. So Nancy and I, we, we have our foundation and we do things. On the sidelight, or the sidelines, I guess you'd say, Nancy and I, we own investments and we have some companies and, and things like that that we run on a private basis. I'm not involved in any public companies anymore. Everything is private or philanthropic and educational. I'm also the chairman of the advisory board for the University of Nebraska Engineering School. And right now we're in a about a $200 million raise to upgrade and build new facilities for the university in engineering. And we've been working really hard raising the money, and we've raised over $150 million towards that goal already. We should be wrapping that up. Our first facilities are under construction now, and We'll be building some large things so that the students have state-of-the-art facilities to learn their trade. And so when they go out in the world, they have every opportunity of a great toolkit and a great understanding of how to learn when they go out to the companies of the world and do their things. I'm sure somewhere in that engineering schools, the next CEO of Woodside or BP or Shell or somebody, that gives my wife and I great joy. My wife's better at it than I am by far. It's always teamwork. Yeah. She has her schools and I have my alumni. She went to school at Colorado School of Mines and then went on to Harvard. You got her MBA there. So we have uh, kind of different schools, but the same intent and the same outcome. Great. Thanks, Don. What are your last words if you speak to people that are on their journeys in business from yeah. a leadership perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. I get that a lot, actually. I do. I tend to get people to talk to me about, I just had one that felt he was stuck at work and that his supervisor didn't understand it. And, and he was wondering, he had some job offers. He didn't know whether he should jump ship and and go somewhere else or not. And it was kind of interesting taking him through that journey. I would just say this. I had some very, very smart bosses and influencers in my life. And, and a couple things that I think work really well is, I had one boss one time tell me very early on in my career, Don, volunteer for all the hardest projects. Volunteer for all the projects that nobody else wants to do. And I said, yeah, but they're hard. He says, it doesn't matter if, you're, if you fail at it, as long as you make the effort, your management will really appreciate you for that. So I think some of the advice I'd like to give the younger folks is challenge yourself at work. Volunteer for the hard stuff and take on the role. If, it's, if you're in a team setting, take the hardest role in that job. You'll learn more. You'll get more satisfaction if successful. 
and you'll learn more if it's not successful. A couple of other things I tell folks that worked for me at least, and that one, by the way, really worked well for me. It allowed me to be differentiated from others. And after a while, I kind of understood it. I didn't understand it at first. But the other thing I would just say is, is that have some patience. Not everything's going to go as fast or as, as exacting as you, what you might think, but you'll get your breaks along the way. If you're a hard worker, you mean well, you do things right, you follow the rules, etc. It, it normally works out, and you got to have a little patience. I, I know there was two or three times in my career where I kind of felt lost and didn't know if anybody was there. If you just stay after it, it usually works out. So trust yourself. I guess the last piece of advice I give is help your neighbor. What do I mean by that? Help your teammate at work. In other words, I would always hear from my managers, you know, Joe's getting a lot of credit for that. But it was really Rebecca's ideas, and Rebecca really helped Joe get that done. And, and I would always sit there and remember Rebecca. Okay, Rebecca is the quiet person there. Make sure she gets credit for that. Make sure that that's noted on her career and, and things like that. But you don't need to have the headline credit, but people do recognize, and it propels the team to greater things. So I always tell folks, even if you think you're not going to be recognized for it or whatever, it doesn't matter. You will be. People are more aware and are smarter than you think. And people do ask the right questions about how did this work get done. I'll leave it at that. But yeah, I'm just hoping that if people had one-third the luck that I had, one-third the, the timing of opportunities, they're going to have a blast in life. Because I had a 43-year career that was I, I could never want for anything better. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Don. That was a really, really, really nice conversation and so interesting and so rich in your experiences. It was great. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining our Corpus conversation today. We would love to connect with you. Sign up to our podcast, follow us on LinkedIn or email us at connect at corpus.team.